It's great singing, great singing of a great song, speaking of our earthly pilgrimage and the future that awaits us, the glorious future bought by Christ when our faith will be sight. Take your Bibles, turn along with me to the book of Nahum. We're walking through the book of Nahum, taking a few weeks to do that. Feel free to use your table of contents in front of your Bible to help find it a little more quickly. It's not a book we turn to frequently. If you have a ribbon in your Bible, that would be a a good use of it as well. I'll get you there quicker next week. Nahum chapter 1 is where we are this morning. One of the most common cries of the people of God is, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? You can read this same question in the Psalms again and again. How long, O Lord? How long will this trial last? How long must I endure this hardship? How long before you answer my prayer, Lord? How long will you let the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? King David asked this same question in Psalm 13. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long, Lord? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? That was an active question among the people of Judah as they suffered under Assyrian oppression. How long, Lord, will you let my enemy exalt over me? In our text this morning, we'll see the Lord answer this question, how long? By informing God's people that the time of their suffering under brutal Assyrian oppression was nearing its end. God would save his people through the destruction of their enemies. And as this would prove true for the tiny kingdom of Judah in the 7th century B.C., it's just as true today. One day, and it could be very soon, the Lord is going to bring final deliverance to His people through the destruction of their enemies. The only question that remains is this. Am I numbered among God's people that will be saved in that day? Or am I numbered among God's enemies? that will face his judgment and his certain destruction. Who am I today? Am I among God's enemies? Or am I numbered among the saved and delivered? Well, it's with this question ringing in our ears that I want to read our text this morning from God's Word. It's taken from Nahum, chapter 1, verse 9. Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, and we'll go through chapter 2 and verse 2. Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, 
They are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you. I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortresses, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the pages of your word. We thank you especially for revealing to us your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Know how the nations rage even today against him and against his plans. Lord, we pray that we would see him today high and lifted up. We pray that we would understand that He is the King of kings and that we are accountable to Him. And I pray that every knee in here would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that they would do so now before the day of judgment. Thus receive pardon and mercy and forgiveness and eternal life instead of judgment and wrath for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Make this so among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In our text this morning, we are going to see that God saves His people through the destruction of their enemies. We'll see once again the dynamic interplay between God's judgment and His gospel comfort. In fact, throughout this whole passage, we see a volley back and forth. It's hard to keep track who's being referenced here with all of the pronouns, but uh, it's back and forth between Assyria and its king and the people of God. It's a volley back and forth between God's gospel mercy and salvation and his judgment and destruction. And so we're going to see that divine interplay between God's judgment and his gospel comfort. This is in keeping with the twofold theme of Nahum, gospel comfort and divine judgment. We're going to first take a look at God's judgment and his enemies in this passage, and then we'll see God's salvation of his people. So let's look first of all at God's judgment of his enemies. God pronounces judgment upon our enemies resulting in their destruction. That's the first point. There's going to be three subpoints under that. We're going to see three aspects of God's judgment. We're going to see the reasons for his judgment. We're going to see the results of his judgment. And we're going to see the ridiculousness of thinking you can resist God's judgment. First of all, the reasons for God's judgment. Verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. 
Why is God judging the Assyrians? Is he just picking on people? Is, he just doesn't like them? He, does he have a predisposition against them? What's the reason for this judgment? Well, God reveals here through Nahum the reasons for his judgment of Assyria and of the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. The nation of Assyria has plotted against the Lord. The king of Assyria has plotted against the Lord. That is the reason for the judgment coming upon them. They have, in effect, sworn themselves as the enemy of Yahweh, and they've been plotting and scheming against Yahweh and against His people for centuries. And the result of this is that God is going to judge them. Conspiracy against Yahweh is described here. In verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, He's going to make a complete end of it. They were devising and scheming against the Lord and against His purposes. This conspiracy against Yahweh is further described as being led by an Assyrian king in verse 11. From you, Assyria, has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. This particular conspirator king who plotted against the Lord, plotted evil against the Lord, is probably referring to the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who about 60 years before the time of Nahum here, in 701 B.C., tried to lay siege to Jerusalem, which was under the leadership at that time of the good king Hezekiah. This attempt at the siege was miraculously defeated when an angel of the Lord went through the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the dead of night. Immediately, 185,000 soldiers dead. They woke up in the morning with bodies everywhere. This caused the mighty Assyrians to rethink their siege works and their siege plans and to retreat and head back to Nineveh. You can read all about that failed siege attempt to take Jerusalem in 2 Kings 18 and 19. It's a fascinating story. Go home, open your Bible this afternoon, read 2 Kings 18 and 19 to get this backstory. Well, in verse 10, God promises to make a complete end of Assyria's evil plans, of all their plottings and evil schemings. God is going to bring a complete destruction not only to their plans, and not only to the city, but to the whole nation of Assyria. It's similar to what God promised earlier in verse 8. Look at Nahum 1.8. But with an overwhelming flood, God will make a complete end of its sight, and He will pursue His enemies into darkness. There's going to be no escape. He's going to judge Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, Assyria, all of it. Verse 10 expands on this destruction. Look at verse 10. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed and stubble completely withered. Like tangled thorns, Assyria can't untangle itself from its national stubbornness and rebellion against Yahweh, and like a tangle of thorns, it's all going to go into the fire at the same time. And like drunken men, they're going to be left staggering and defenseless against God's overwhelming judgment. They will be consumed quickly like dry stubble. 
when it's exposed to a consuming fire. The completeness of this coming judgment will ensure that distress will not rise up twice, as it says in verse 9. Assyria is going to fall never to rise again. This underscores both the certainty and the finality of the judgment that is coming to them. So why is Assyria being judged and why is their destruction promised here? Because they have chosen to rebel against the Lord and against His people. They have chosen to devise evil plans against the Lord and against His people and they will suffer the consequences of doing so. This idea of plotting against the Lord is very reminiscent of what we read in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 expands this evil scheming and this plotting that goes on against the Lord and against His anointed one. It expands it worldwide. It reveals that there's a worldwide system that is opposed to the Lord, the creator of all things, and opposed to the one whom He has sent. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 opens with a question. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Why are they making worthless plans, futile plans that will never come to fruition? Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. His anointed is the king. It's the Messiah ultimately. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings. The kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth take their stand and their counsel against the Lord. Verse 3, this is what they say. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We want to be free of any demands our Creator might make of us. We want to do our own thing. We want to live our lives without being slaves to some other will what is god what is his response to this verse 4 he who sits in the heavens laughs the lord scoffs at them he taunts them he laughs at them and their plans and their evil scheming then he'll speak to them in his anger and he'll terrify them in his fury saying but as for me i've installed my king upon zion my holy mountain my plans will be established says the lord all of your efforts to undermine what I'm doing and who I'm presenting as the king will come to nothing and less than nothing. This fallen world today still plots and schemes against the Lord and against His anointed. But all such schemes will come to nothing for the Lord will make a complete end of it and He will judge all those who continue in their stubborn rebellion against Him and against His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to the closing words of Psalm 2, verse 9 through 12. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. God's King is going to shatter all rebels and all rebel kingdoms. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He may not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. 
God is so merciful. He's so gracious. He's so patient. He's so long-suffering, as we saw last Sunday. He offers to rebels, to sinners, far and wide, to those who would oppose Him, He offers full forgiveness. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry. Pay honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only Son. And you will find that there is forgiveness, that there is refuge in Him. Well, the reason for God's judgment is because of the sin and rebellion of mankind. The results of God's judgment come in verse 14, back to Nahum chapter 1. The results of God's judgment. Nahum 1.14 says, The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. You are worthless, essentially, is what he says. These words are directed to the king of Assyria. His name will no longer be perpetuated. Kingly lines were important in those days of monarchy. A genealogical line was the most important thing to a king. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an end to your family line. His whole family will be destroyed with no hope of continuation of the family line. His genealogical line will come to an end. Furthermore, his household and his household idols will be cut off. Assyria was well known for going into enemy territory, going into their shrines and stealing their idols and destroying their sacred sites. Here it is God who will do the destroying of the Assyrian gods, demonstrating that He is superior to the Assyrian gods. Finally, God says He'll prepare the king's grave because He is contemptible and worthless. God says here, I'm going to dig your grave. That's some serious talk. That's a serious threat. And we know from history that's exactly what God did. It's exactly what happened. Nineveh was completely destroyed. Her gods were completely destroyed, buried in the ground for millennia, nearly forgotten by the world. It just became a, a big mound on an otherwise flat plain. Listen to what one historian has written about destroyed Nineveh. It says that Nineveh sank so rapidly from sight that when Xenophon, the Greek military leader, led his 10,000 Greeks over the site 200 years later, just 200 years later, on their celebrated reconnaissance of the Persian Empire, they did not know that Nineveh lay underfoot. It became forgotten. It just seemed like a, a lump in the desert. The once great Nineveh was reduced to nothing and less than nothing so that an educated man leading his troops 200 years later wouldn't even know what ground he was standing on and the historic site he was seeing. The results of God's judgment are total devastation and destruction. That's no surprise because we read last week in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2 
that God is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. Verse 6, who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? Well, certainly Nineveh couldn't. The Assyrian, the great Assyrian Empire couldn't. And you and I are foolish if we think we can stand on our own before a holy God who is a consuming fire. Finally, we see the ridiculousness of thinking you can resist God's judgment. We see this in chapter 2 and verse 1. Nahum chapter 2 and verse 1, the one who scatters has come up against you. So man the fortresses, watch the roads, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. Assyria is again being addressed here. The one who scatters is probably a reference to the military coalition of the Babylonians and the Medes who had formed an alliance and were planning the best way to assault Nineveh and thus bring down Assyria. They are called here the scatterers. Ancient armies would frequently take captives and scatter them across the victor's kingdoms, dispersing those local native enemy populations. Assyria did this, you may recall, with the ten northern tribes of Israel. They came in, they defeated Israel, and they took all of those people into exile, or at least many of them, scattering them around the globe and around the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians had been the scatterers, but now new scatterers were on Assyria's doorstep waiting to scatter them. It's a bit of poetic justice here. What goes around comes around. And it would ultimately, we know, be the Lord who is the great scatterer of the Assyrians, scattering their gods and scattering the people and the nation. In response to this enemy army at the gates, God, through the prophet Nahum, sarcastically calls the people of Nineveh to take up defensive positions. Red alert! The enemy is at the door. The enemy is at the gate. Man your fortresses. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon all your strength. You see, given the certainty of God's decreed judgment against Nineveh and against Assyria, Nahum is speaking these commands with satire and irony. Nahum is taunting Nineveh, saying in effect, yeah, go ahead, make all of your defensive preparations. Man the fortresses by all means. Watch the roads if you will. Strengthen your back if you dare. Summon all your strength. Because you're going to need it. Because the enemy you're facing is not merely the Babylonians and the Medes. They're merely the tool in God's hand. The enemy you are facing is God Himself. God the warrior. God the wrathful. So good luck with all your preparations. Good luck with all your strength and all your effort and all your watching. We'll see how that works out for you in the day of judgment. Naomi is here highlighting the ridiculousness of thinking you can resist or avoid 
the certainty of God's judgment against his enemies. In your own strength, there is no hope for you. God has promised to judge all those who are guilty in his sight. Nahum 1.3 The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. No one escapes his wrath on their own, in their own strength, with their own devices, standing on their own two feet. No one escapes his judgment. As we saw last week, God is a holy God and he must judge and punish all sin and rebellion. His holiness demands it. Though he is patient and long-suffering, nevertheless, there's coming a day of judgment for all. And that leaves us all in a bad situation. For the Bible is clear that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's holy and perfect standard. We've all sinned and like sheep, we've gone astray from Him. So is there any hope for us to escape the certainty of God's judgment? Thankfully, the Bible makes it clear that yes, there is hope. There is hope, and it's only found in Jesus Christ. There is no hope found in ourselves. There is no hope found in our defensive efforts. There's no hope in our own strength. But there is hope in Jesus Christ, God's Son. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. That means that Jesus is not only human, but He is also God in the flesh. Jesus is the God-man. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Chosen One, the anointed one of Psalm 2, the one who could come and live a sinless life and live a life of perfect obedience to God. He lived this perfect life so that he could go to the cross and serve as a sacrifice and, and as a substitute for you and for me, sinful rebels as we are. On the cross, the sinless Savior took upon himself our sin and our guilt and God judged his only Son for our sins. Isaiah says that God was pleased to crush him for our sakes. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to the full for all who would believe upon him so that the wrath of God was satisfied. Justice was served, but it was served by being meted out upon God's holy son, Jesus. Jesus, in his humanity, became the enemy of God, the curse of God, as he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith in him. And Jesus would cry out from the cross in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken because of our sin, because of our guilt, because of our rebellion. Jesus was judged and destroyed so that we wouldn't be. Jesus died on the cross having received the just judgment of God that our sins deserved. Jesus rose again from the grave three days later and now offers salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life to all who will believe in Him, to all who will trust in Him, to all who will lay down their arms and rest in the provision of of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But for those who refuse Jesus' gift of forgiveness, our text this morning would say this to you. Go ahead, man the fortresses. Watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength, 
Do your worst. You're going to need it. Good luck with that come judgment day. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. No one can stand against the Lord. Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? No one can except the Lord Jesus Christ and all those who run to him in faith and have found him to be their fortress of safety and security. So, as we've seen, God pronounces judgment upon his enemies and brings to them their certain destruction. Secondly, this morning, we're going to see that God saves his people through the destruction of our enemies. And under this heading, I want us to see five aspects of God's salvation. First thing we see is that God's salvation is certain, though it might seem impossible. It's certain, though it might seem impossible. Look at verse 12, Nahum 1.12, thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Thus says the Lord, this is the Lord's word of decree, his solemn oath, where he swears by himself. It's an oracle, a divine pronouncement, and therefore you can be sure about it, you can bank on it, you can build your life upon it. What does the Lord decree here? What does he promise? Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they're going to be cut off and pass away. The destruction of Nineveh must have seemed impossible at the time this was written. For Nineveh and Assyria were at their height of power. They were a world superpower, the supreme world superpower. Listen to what one historian has said about the Assyrian power and might. According to one ancient source, the Assyrians possessed a military machine of 1.7 million foot soldiers, 200,000 horsemen, 16,000 war chariots, the most formidable army in the world. Compare that to lowly Judah, a ragtag rabble of a city that was basically a puppet state of Assyria at the time. Look at this great nation of Assyria, this great city, Nineveh. It's going to be utterly destroyed. Are you kidding me, Nahum? What world are you living in? I live in the world of reality, Nahum. It's time you started living there too. I mean, this city is is protected by this series of massive defensive walls, wall within wall, and between the walls is a, a great moat, 100 feet wide, 60 feet deep. These walls are 100 feet high. The walls are so thick that you can ride three chariots abreast around these miles and miles of walls surrounding the city of Nineveh. The idea that this city could be destroyed must have seemed preposterous, impossible. No one could imagine just how this great city could come to an end like this. And yet Nineveh was utterly destroyed at the height of its power. 
ancient Babylonian texts tell us that the fall of Nineveh happened on August 10th, 612 B.C. We even know the day when it happened. Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire was indeed cut off and passed away just as the Lord said it would. It became a mound in the desert that no one knew about, that everyone forgot about until the middle of the 1800s when it was dug up and rediscovered. It passed away into the forgotten pages of the past. Well, likewise, the evil in this world seems to be running freely. It seems like the destruction of evil systems and evil empires is impossible. They have all the power. They have all the tools. But Revelation 18 and 19 chronicles for us with the certainty of the coming judgment that awaits the world that remains in rebellion to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. This world of rebellion and sin is described with the word Babylon. This is Babylon 2.0. It's the Babylon of the present and the future. It's the city raised up in opposition to God and in opposition to His Son. Babylon that replaced Assyria. Babylon that was just as evil and wicked as Assyria. But this new Babylon, this modern Babylon, this Babylon 2.0 is going to meet its final end one day. Revelation 18.8 says this, For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Babylon 2.0 is going to fall. Finally and completely. Why? Because of her rebellion against the Lord and against His anointed one. Revelation 18, 9 and 10 says this, The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with Babylon will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come swiftly, Surely, Babylon will fall. All who are raising their fists in opposition to God will one day be humbled and brought low and judged and destroyed and cast out. Despite the fact that it might seem impossible, like the world's judgment and destruction couldn't possibly happen and must be far, far off. It will most certainly come about and it will come suddenly and it will come in the midst of everyone saying, well, I didn't see that coming. But rest assured, judgment day is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? There's only one way to be ready. Run into the fortress by faith who is Jesus Christ. Next, we see that God's salvation comes when God's purposes have been fulfilled. Well, when's it going to happen? When God's purposes are fulfilled. Again, verse 12. At the end of verse 12, God says to Judah, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. That was then, but this is now. This has been what I've been doing, but now I'm going to do a new thing. I've afflicted you, but now I'm going to afflict you no longer. You see, God was using Assyria 
as the rod of correction applied to the seat of his wayward son, Israel. Isaiah 10 makes this clear, verses 5 and 6. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. See, God was using Assyria for a time to correct wayward Israel. But there would come a time when God's use of Assyria would come to an end and it would be time for Assyria to receive the judgment of God. According to Nahum, that time would be coming soon. God is so merciful. God forestalls His judgment because of His mercy. He gives time and opportunity for sinful rebels to repent But rest assured, his patience and mercy do have a limit, and time is running out. Christian, remember, God's salvation is always right on time. God has a purpose in everything that he's doing. He may be disciplining you. He may be correcting you. He may be strengthening you and growing you through what you're going through. But he is always right on time. We say, how long, O Lord? At the right time, the Lord will act. At the right time, the Lord will deliver. At the right time, the Lord will make provision. Not before. And He's never late. When will deliverance come? When will judgment come? It will come right on time. When God's purposes have been fulfilled. Next, we see that God's salvation brings freedom. Freedom to worship and serve God. Verse 13. God says, So now, I will break His yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off His shackles. Your shackles. The Lord emphasizes the nearness of the relief that is to come. So now. So now. That was then. This is now. This is about to happen. What's about to happen? I'm going to break the yoke from upon you and tear off your shackles. The Lord is going to restore their freedom. The Lord is going to destroy their enemies and the evil shackles and rods that they've been ruled by. God's going to destroy all that and restore freedom to His people. And he's going to do that. He's going to give them freedom in order that they might serve God more faithfully, that they might obey God more closely. Look at the middle of verse 15. He says, Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows. With its new com- newfound freedom comes newfound responsibility to walk with the Lord, to love the Lord, to serve the Lord. Jesus, of course, promised if the Son sets you free, you will be free, what? Truly free. Free for what? Free to serve the Lord. Free to honor Him and worship Him. Free to obey Him. God breaks the shackles and sets us free in order that we might serve Him more faithfully and more fully. 
Next, we see that God's salvation is good news worth sharing. Verse 15, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. These words are strikingly similar to the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 52.7. Nahum is very likely in homage writing down very similar words to what Isaiah had written down earlier. The messenger here is one who brings good news. And how blessed are his feet. The good news here is the message of Assyria's downfall and of the people of God's freedom as a result and their salvation. And this good news was worth sharing. There was a special appreciation for the herald who brought the news. And Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 10, and he talked about the beautiful feet of those who share the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's no better news than that. That all your sins can be forgiven. That you can be, go from being the enemy of God to being a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God, an heir of God, and a co-heir with Jesus Christ even. What good news. Well, the salvation of God's people is always good news. And what good news we have to share with others. That God's just judgment of sin has been satisfied fully in Jesus Christ. Finally, we see God's salvation results in the restoration of God's good design. With salvation not only comes an escaping of God's wrath, but a restoration of God's good purposes for us. The fall has brought about a marring of the image of God in us. The fall has brought about a a natural world that is in opposition to us. We no longer live in harmony with the world around us, but there is now weed and toil and stubble and hardship and sweat and death all around us. But that is going to be overturned. Because with the judgment of God's enemies comes the judgment of the very curse of sin itself. And God is going to restore all things as they should be. Nahum 2.2, For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. God plans to restore the splendor of His people. God promises that Israel will be restored. God promises that you and I will be restored and remade into what God intended us to be from the beginning. Indeed, the entire universe is going to be restored and recreated into the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the great end toward which all things are headed. Amen? That's where all things are headed and you and I as Christians are going to be a part of that. This coming restoration and this coming judgment were all made possible and were made certain at the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus saved his people through the destruction of their enemies. Who are our enemies? Well, our enemies are sin and Satan and the evil world system around us. And God judged all of them at the cross, even as He judged His his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Jesus announced a victory before the cross even because the cross was so certain. He says in John 12, 31 and 32, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Judgment is upon the world. The ruler of this world is cast out. Judgment and destruction of all that is in opposition to God is ensured by the cross of Jesus Christ. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26. says that Jesus must reign until, all, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? It's been obliterated at the cross. We no longer fear death. Why? Because death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus has borne the wrath of God for us so that we need never fear death, for death is merely our graduation into eternity, into what we were made for. And so through the destruction of our enemies, God has secured our eternal salvation. And He's done it all through His glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at what You accomplished on the cross for us. It's the most, coupled with the the resurrection, the most important event in all of human history. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. For in it, our enemies' fate was sealed. Satan is defeated. Sin is overturned. Death is swallowed up in victory. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's not sure if they are still the enemy of God, that they would flee to Jesus Christ and His cross. That they would run, as it were, in heart and soul and spirit to Jesus and trust only in Him. May they not trust in their strength. May they not trust in their ability to stand on Judgment Day on their own abilities. But may they trust solely in Jesus Christ who fulfilled all righteousness and satisfied the just wrath of God against our sin. Lord Jesus, now we return to the table that you initiated for us and founded for us and called us to turn to again and again and receive encouragement and mercy and grace and communion with you and with one another. We remember you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.